welcome to episode 130 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we look back on our preseason predictions, what we got right, what we got wrong, and even who won some of our year annual contests between crew chiefs and even win picks. Looking forward to that as we see how we did in 2021. But first, as always, we start with a quick look back on the time Michael Waltrip crashed his number 30 Kool-Aid car in a NASCAR Bush Series race at Bristol in 1990. One of the most horrific crashes in NASCAR history, David, that saw Waltrip walk away uninjured. David, this was a little before my time. I'd be pretty young, so were you. But no doubt any serious NASCAR fan knows about this incident and has seen it, at least. It was, you know, the old Bristol, if you will. Not the concrete coliseum you know today. It still had that look of a local short track with the metal gates meeting concrete, barrierless walls. And that's where Waltrip hit, right where those two come together. And it basically cut his car in half. If, if you watch the broadcast on YouTube... Ned Jarrett comments how the car, it's on its roof, but really it's not. It just looks so bad and unrecognizable that it maybe looked like it was on its roof. No, it was just in pieces everywhere. The rescue crews of the time, if that's what you want to call them, they were able to lift the sheet metal off the car, David, like it was pieces of paper uh, from the from the frame of the car. And then all of a sudden you see Waltrip there exposed in the roll cage. Thank, he, he, th- thankfully, he stood up, went to the infield care, not long after was speaking to Benny Parsons. Uh, you can see that from the replay. What do you think we should know about this, David? It was, I mean, as you said, I think it was the aftermath of the crash that shocked everybody. The The crash itself was completely normal until the impact. Uh, and as you said, Michael Waldrop hit that spot where the track wall opened with a metal gate. He hit the concrete abutment and the car... It disintegrated. If you just if you put it in slow motion, it's yeah. kind of it's it's one of the weirdest looking crashes. So I encourage folks to go to YouTube and, and watch it. But as explained by Al Pierce in 1990 for the Daily Press, the right front wheel, its suspension components and the right side frame rail and door bars were sheared away and remained embedded in the crossover gate. The engine dashboard front snout half the floor pan and much of the undercarriage and suspension parts tore free, slammed against the abutment, then bounced down the track. The car's rear clip, fuel cell, left side frame rail, transmission, main roll cage, and part of the floor pan bowed to the left but stayed intact, even though the seat and left side door bars were twisted three feet out of line with the frame rail, Waldrop remained strapped into this seat. So... Weird crash, parts everywhere. I'd never seen anything like it at that time, and for a while, I didn't see anything like it again. Maybe until Mike Harmon in mm. uh, at the same track in two thousand two. Yep. I, I think. Yep. And uh, I, I just I watched this crash. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying I build my ear around it, but I, I feel like maybe once a year I, I somehow come across the crash, and every time I watch it, I'm puzzled by it. And as soon as I question whether the car was poorly assembled because again the body just flew right apart i realized that michael waldrop walked away from it without so much as a scratch so i'm perplexed about what to even think about this accident the odds of the crash in that specific spot had to be long if not you know one in a million but he hit it and his cars were want to do he found the harsh space Along the wall. So uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, but for me, it's a reminder of how safe tracks and facilities are right now uh, and how they've become oh, yeah. since this time. Um, the invention of the safer barrier, the uh, the abolition of most of those kinds of openings, tunnels, people, tunnels for the win. Uh, I'm thankful that Michael Waldrop walked away from that, but it's a kind of impact that shouldn't have happened and uh and certainly now very rarely does if at all yeah and thankfully rare it's still a reminder though it never seems to fail right cars always find the weak points on tracks right it seems like jeff gordon right was on a run of finding just the worst spot at every single racetrack to hit like oh they'll never hit there reminds me you know when elliot sadler hit that weird spot at pocono and just you know tore the engine out of the car 
uh, Mark Martin a few years ago at Michigan, right? Coming down pit road and nearly, I mean, nearly died, right? The concrete wall where the barrier pit road was nearly went through him at the strangest angle you would never in a million years think would happen. Well, guess what had happened? It, it reminds me of being at Coda for the first time this year, David, when we took the pre-race uh, the, the day before. They took us out all on trams to show us the uh, the track and everything. And there was a we- there was one wall with a weird angle. And I, and I made the comment to the rest of us on the tram ride, like, uh, uh, no doubt a car will find that one weird angle. And of course it did. It was that big crash. During the cup race, during all the rain, it, I think it was Truex uh, that was, or I mean, he got hit, or it was in that Truex crash that, that hit that weird angle and it looked terrible. No matter how low you think the odds are of Michael Waltrip hitting where the wall and that weird gate used to be, how low that odd may be, it happens. And it seems to happen all the time in racing that they, yeah. it will always find the weak spot somehow in some terrible way. And we're just so lucky. That that worse things haven't happened in the past. That that's always my takeaway from these odd crashes. Is that as odd as they are, they always seem to happen. It feels like, and they do seem to impact uh, change, or 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 yep. at least uh, provide the influence. So, if there's any you know silver lining in this, is that we don't have openings to racetracks like that anymore. We don't have exposed abutments certainly like that because he went. I mean, they're probably a hundred miles an hour. He went from 100 to zero in maybe a second. And that's a heck of an impact. I mean, he is lucky and fortunate to have walked away, but there you go. I mean, that, that's, that is the starting point, uh, from which to build a safer sport. And the sport has been on a run now 20 years, uh, at the, at the highest level of stock car racing without any kind of a fatality, um, there have been maybe a handful of serious injuries, if that. So I think NASCAR and the tracks in general have done an exceptional job of making the sport far, far safer uh, and making this more of uh, an entertainment vehicle, which we want it to be. We don't want to see uh, people that we like and uh, and root for get hurt. But yeah, I mean, an accident like this, you you kind of wonder like, how how did that even happen? I don't know who to blame. Yeah, it's 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 really the it, it that that crash is just one of the more puzzling ones in NASCAR history. It was horrific, um, but it also makes you scratch your head and wonder, God, how like how did what were the odds of that happening? And and yeah, it absolutely happened. And the wreckage was saved because I, if I remember correctly, I, I saw it at Michael Walter Bracing when he had a shop here in, in North Carolina, uh, doing a little digging. It may be down in Talladega it, yeah. is one, yeah, one spot I saw someone on the internet wrote. So it, it's still around. If you ever get a chance to see it, all that wreckage and it was pieces, but someone kind of put it back together and it, it still exists. If you need to see it up close and, uh, it, just see what happened that day and to see, uh, Mikey's still walking around after it. Crazy. Yeah. So- Solid memory for Kool Aid as well. Yeah. That was the, that was the first time Kool Aid was on yeah. a NASCAR stock car, and uh, the the post race interview, Michael got a Kool Aid plug in, said, "Well, I hope it was good for Kool Aid." Is the first time they were on a car, and then a golf cart whizzed him away, and that was it. Yeah, what a uh, so, guy! Yeah, uh, uh, endorser to the last, Michael Waldrop. Absolutely, and he ran the Cup race the next day, and uh, didn't need a a replacement driver or anything. So just crazy. Yeah, go back and watch it. But I, I'm glad we uh, started this episode. Episode 130, looking back on Michael Waltrip and the crash he walked away from back in 1990. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, Anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need Indeed. All right, let's get it started, David. Good news, bad news. Forgot to mention earlier, this is the last episode of the season. Yes, it's off-season for NASCAR, a little off-season for positive regression. But because it is the final episode, we're going to look back on how we did with our preseason predictions. Yes, way back when, maybe even been January, well before the season, we made a list of predictions. Some we got right, some we got wrong. But it's fun to look back on, and that's what we're going to do right now, David. And we'll start with one that I got wrong. Alan got it wrong. (laughs) I predicted Chase Briscoe will win a road course race. Well, obviously that didn't happen. He did come close. Let's not forget he was in position in Indy to bump Denny Hamlin out of the way and possibly win. He led 12 laps in that race, the most he led all year. In terms of track type, road courses were his best. Uh, So I don't see it as quite... You know, I don't want to say anything bad. He wasn't a failure on my part. I mean, I knew picking a rookie to win uh, was a long shot, but I thought he could do it with his road course prowess. But it's supposed to be hard in the Cup Series. The fact that he didn't win, but at least was competitive, that's still a win for me, David. But no, he did not get a checkered flag this year on a road course. So I got that prediction wrong. What say you about Chase Briscoe and his road course acumen? I didn't think this prediction had uh, much of a chance, if any. Um, Whatever. <laughs> well, but, well, but but we, we can we can backtrack though. R- rookies in the Cup Series tend to produce poorly, and recent history is on our side with that. Uh, since 2016, there have only been two rookies with a peer higher than 1.0. They were Mr. Eric Jones in 2017 and Tyler Reddick last year. Uh, and it should be noted in that time frame, we saw heavy regulations and restrictions placed on Cup Series driver participation in the Xfinity Series. That simultaneously diminished the talent level in that series and inflated some of the surface level numbers of drivers in that series, including Briscoe, nine wins in the Xfinity Series in 2020. His only real competition at that point was Austin Sendrick. So not a bad driver to uh, sharpen your sword against, but once you get into the cup series, it's a different breed of iron, big difference this year. And that idea that he was in contention for good finishes on road courses, including Indianapolis, as you mentioned, he led a part of the last lap. That all probably represents his most realistic best case scenario for the year. And he has a lot of growing to do. He always did. And at age 26, uh, mind you, he's older than Chase Elliott and Tyler Reddick and William Byron, and very clearly behind all of them in terms of production ability and, and some of what we can quantify through other metrics, he still has strengths. And the road course acumen is a strength, and that will play for him moving forward into this new era of, uh, of Cup Series racing. He was an above par preferred groove restarter this year. He was a plus passer on 550 tracks, which tells us he did adapt somewhat to lower horsepower, which was, of course, uh, a big question for him. So there are some positive takeaways for uh, for Chase Briscoe, who will soon be anointed NASCAR Rookie of the Year if he hasn't received that plaque already. Um, so no, the prediction didn't uh, come to fruition, but not a terrible first season in the Cup Series for Chase Briscoe. How about early uh, anticipation for next year? The rookie performances of Sindrick, Austin Sindrick, and Harrison Burton. Because for Sindrick, uh, look, I'll give you a spoiler, David. Maybe when we come around to January and February next year, I'll make the same prediction. Austin Sindrick wins a road course race in 2022. My confidence is not swayed whatsoever. Now, Harrison Burton, I'm not so sure. We've discussed him before. Uh, up and down for a career driver, right? I mean, didn't win in a KBM truck, then wins four races in a year next fin, then none, and now he's in the Cup Series. I'm not sure what to predict out of him, but uh, I'm high on Austin. How about you? I think a lot of struggle with some signs of progress for both of them because that's what rookies nowadays tend to show. And, uh, and based on their history, that's what I expect. I think you laid out Harrison Burton's uh, career to this point pretty well, so I'm not going to rehash it. Uh, I think it's fair to question what happened this year in the Xfinity series. It should have been a step forward and it was not. For Cendric, we saw a lot from him in both Cup and Xfinity this year. In Cup, we saw a driver who 
led road course races was ready to lead all road course races essentially that he was in and uh, and potentially compete for wins and we also saw a driver who could pass efficiently against those in his running whereabouts but we also saw him with the single highest crash rate this season among all drivers making at least six starts Hmm. Uh, we also mentioned prior to Phoenix, the season finale, his Xfinity season left a lot to be desired. He ranked first in average running position in 13 races on non-drafting tracks this year. He only won three of those races. So at the very least in cup, you need to finish where you run. And he had a difficult time doing that against weaker competition. So yes, this will be a tremendous challenge for him. He does stand out as a potential threat on road course races, but I think the year in totality for him and the pace at which the Cup Series uh, operates from week to week, um, that's a that's a hurdle for any young driver to overcome. All right. Good analysis there. Uh, yeah, I got it wrong. Chase Briscoe did not win a road course race. Next up. David got it wrong. Uh, David, your prediction was Sam Mayer will win a NASCAR Xfinity Series race in 2021. Uh, That didn't happen. Uh, Not only that, he also ranked last, last in Xfinity Series peer. Uh, Just a crap year. Uh, I'm sorry. Just falling so (laughs) short. Well, I mean, I had high expectations just like you did. uh, What do I say? I mean, I remember when Ty Gibbs won this season, David, that only made you feel better about your Sam Mayer prediction. I remember that 18 races for Sam Mayer, six top tens. That's good. But also six finishes of 33rd or worse and a whole lot of crashing. Those are just the raw stats. What did you see out there? Because he was in a JRM car with a great crew chief known for a lot of speed. Uh, What Josh Berry got some wins in that car. So we expected more out of Sam Mayer. What happened? Womp womp. Uh, he's <laughs> look, he's he's really good. He's really young. I bet on the really yeah. good. I should have bet on the really young. He <laughs> he spent two years in the Arca East, and there he was dominant, but not totally challenged. And this year he was absolutely challenged, not only with the competition difference, but with the bigger tracks. Until now, he never had to deal with Arrow both driving near other cars and having to block other cars. That's a lot to learn on the fly. Uh, but he does have talent. Uh, don't let a, a negative peer get you down. He was an above average restarter from the preferred groove. His surplus passing across all tracks was at an elite level for the Xfinity series. Uh, predominantly so on short tracks. That's coming to no one's surprise. Uh, but he's also an above par passer on road courses where he needs to improve is at the bigger facilities. That is a must. Uh, Even if some of those tracks are going the way of the Dodo, that is the weak part of his repertoire right now. So rough year, half year one, but this was all done in anticipation. Uh, You know, he didn't have to, he didn't have the pressure of, I don't think of earning a ride for next year. Right. I think we found out pretty early that he was full time with JRM. He will be back in full-time Xfinity series, you know, going for a championship next year. What should we expect from him moving forward? Yeah, he's slated to return. I'll double down. I think he gets at least one win next season. He's talented, but where he struggled, uh, it was clear. He was really in over his head, crashing once every two races. Mm. Uh, You know, he works closely with Josh Wise. Uh, driver coach. And, uh, my colleague at NBC, Dustin Long, wrote a great Friday piece a few weeks back on what Josh Wise had been doing with some of his protégés. I think he had one driver in each of the three championship races at Phoenix. Uh, but with Sam Mayer, there's work to be done. And it's likely that that work indeed gets done based on these surroundings. So uh, again, I mean, it, it yes, it truly went up in flames this year, but Sam Mayer is a ball of talent that is just woefully inexperienced, especially on big tracks, um, seemingly sheltered in the Arca East, uh, who's just now finally getting his wits about him in the wider world of big time auto racing. 
Sam Mayer, we'll see what you can do in 2022. Help David out a little bit. Help the guy out. All right, next up. Uh, David, got it right. Chase Elliott's production will regress. That was the prediction back before the 2021 season. And it happened. Just two wins in 2021 for Chase Elliott. Neither of them on an oval. Uh, he wasn't bad by any means, of course. You know, he made the the Phoenix Four and nearly defended his championship until the final race. But just that feeling, right? The, the eye test. He was rare. Rarely did he feel like a threat to get the victories uh, on most Sundays. Uh, certainly there, top five, obviously, but not the threat that his teammate Kyle Larson was. Not not the the dominance of Denny Hamlin, despite the lack of wins from the eleven team. Uh, j- just wasn't there as much as, as we maybe expected or have seen before with Chase Elliott. Uh, what happened? Should anyone be concerned if you're in Nine Nation? His fans should be concerned that you know Kyle Larson exists, <laughs> and uh, and and that maybe Chase Elliott has the third best crew chief at Hendrick Motorsports, but that has nothing to do with Elliott's performance. Uh, I think this season, you mentioned Denny Hamlin. He was kind of in that territory, but to a lesser degree. If this was a year of regression, it was not a bad year. You know, regression mm-hmm. happens. And as drivers progress, they are easier to project. So uh, a come down after last season, uh, which we talked about it coming into this year, last season should have been far better than it was. If you actually go back and, and look at some of the advanced numbers, the come down this year was pretty easy to predict. But he did do everything well from a peripheral standpoint, passing restarts, crash avoidance. We talked about this during our requiems and fixes, but uh, you mentioned it. Alan Gustafson probably got in the way of maximizing Elliott's long runs. Uh, there's a graphic uh, this week that posted on the Motorsports Analytics Instagram that showed Chase Elliott is the clear top producer among drivers 25 or younger. So the future seems just fine. Uh, certainly no reason to panic. It's really just the lack of wins, and that's it. He is among the elite, and any slight dip, which includes some regression every other year, that will affect his standing. So glass half full, don't worry about the lack of wins on ovals that uh, took place this year. Focus on what he did well from a performance standpoint, which was largely everything yeah. at, a, at a high level from a, from a personal standpoint. Yeah. And go back and listen to last week's episode because we covered it all. It was hard to find any, uh, any weakness just looking at all of his stats. So, uh, don't never fear Chase Elliott fans and listen to David because he got this one, right? Good job. Next up, David, you got another one, right? You said Kurt Busch will continue his win streak and qualify for the playoffs. The aging Kurt Busch. You know, maybe some doubt as drivers get older. Would he win again? He did win again. Kurt came through strong fashion in that second race in Atlanta. Got a great victory. Uh, made the playoffs just as David predicted. So you, it happened. Uh, can it happen again, though? We're, we already got to look forward, David. It happened in 2021. Now he's on a new team, a uh, new car. I mean, an expansion team, if you will, over at 2311 Racing for a, a team that's already young. Can it happen again? How do you predict that with so many with so much newness? How do you how do you look at Kurt Busch and a new team in the twilight of his career still winning races? Can he do it again? Expansion team just crystallized everything for me. That's a perfect way to put it because I've been wondering about this because even with this year for Bubba Wallace, 2311 was an upgrade over what he's had at his disposal in his past, but for Kurt all of this might be a downgrade. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm I'm not sure of that. So I'll, I'll preface by saying that, but is the organization ready to compete for a title? No. For a playoff spot, we've yet to see it. And when Kurt Busch joined Ganassi, it seems everyone is quick to point out that he improved the Ganassi number one team a lot. But the reality is that Jamie McMurray preceded him in that car and had made the playoffs in three of the four seasons prior to Bush getting that ride. So there was a playoff culture already in place. That's not the case here. 
Kurt Busch isn't the only addition. Billy Scott is coming over as crew chief, famously Rodney Childers' right-hand guy in the Michael Waldrop racing days. Dave Rogers was an appointment to the competition department, which I only think can help. So that is all a collective positive. But how they collect themselves and form into some kind of competitive cup team with an identity because Bush's three wins in the last three seasons all came on mile and a half tracks. Is that the identity here? Does 2311 have that focus? Are they piggybacking off of what Joe Gibbs racing is doing, or is there enough here to uh, work with on their own and and create something new? Uh, Kurt Bush was a negative surplus passer on long runs this season, but he was above average on restarts. He's long been a short run guy and JGR built its program in 2021. And even before that is a long run team. How do those philosophies mesh? You know, it could be a case where one supplements the other pretty well and they, and they kind of do everything okay, or they could just act as the opposite. And then that creates no identity, nothing to fall back on, uh, nothing to call their own. So I'm not so sure that he wins at all next year, if only because there are still a lot of questions about 2311. And now I think there are some questions about Kurt Busch, uh, not that he's uh, bad or that he's declining in, in, in some precipitous way, but just how he slots into what you called an expansion team. And given that it's an expansion team, I, mean, I feel like he's been in that position before, right? Remember, he went to that 51 car through circumstances he created. And then, then he went to the 78 team, the old furniture row before they were champions, right? Those two teams, those situations, those weren't expectations that came w- with winning, correct? So he's been in this situation before. That makes me at least think he he, he, he can go with it thinking realistically. Is that fair? Yeah. I, well, those are low pressure situations, right? Mm, like certainly Phoenix good racing point. was. Good point, okay. yeah. So this one, and I don't know if the pressure has been ratcheted up, and I don't know what he truly feels about it. So we don't know what's going on internally, but the optics of it are, this is a Joe Gibbs Racing satellite team. It's Kurt Busch, JGR, what could go wrong? And I think a lot, because it it doesn't necessarily, or, or what JGR does doesn't necessarily jive with what Kurt does well. So what happens? It, it, again, I go back to, is that all things supplement one another and everything turns out fine and dandy or do opposites fail to attract in this situation and not that it's a you know a potential um combustible situation on the horizon it, it might just be one that's kind of meh you know like maybe maybe they're the 18th best team in the cup series, which by the way, that'd be an improvement on anything that 2311's done or LFR before them. So I don't know. I, I don't know that I can make that same bet and say that Kurt Busch is uh, going to pull one off next year. I think it's going to be far more difficult than most people realize. We shall see. Next up, Alan got it right because we did the crew chief draft. David and I would love ding, 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 ding for you to read the results of the crew chief draft. Uh, just to recap, both David and I did a snake style draft early on or before the season started drafting crew chiefs. And the point was for season long accumulation of uh, positions during green flag pit stops, whose team comprised of four crew chiefs would do the best throughout the entire year. And David, I can't wait to hear the results. Oh, you're milking it, but oh. uh, that's all right. You're the champ. You deserve it. Uh, <laughs> firstly, my team, team David, uh, Ryan Sparks gave me 99 powerful positions on the racetrack. That was the best of any crew chief picks in this draft, but a hall of famer. Ryan Sparks? Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, he's, we, we would, if you are a fan of this podcast, you know we've been talking about him for years. So he's who else is in the Hall of Fame of this contest? <laughs> uh, but that was uh, that was my only positive net. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my first pick was Mike Shiplett. Turned in a negative two. Scott Graves, a negative 58. Whoa. And Travis Mack, a negative 71. 
I think folks see where this is going. Team Allen. Team Allen earned 96 positions from Trent Owens, 65 from Drew Blickensdurfer, and 60 from Brian Patty. Allen also controversially drafted Clinton Cram, who is a crew (laughs) chief for exactly one cup race. Oh, no. And turned in a net zero spots on behalf of Timmy Hill. I'm not fond of that pick, but there was no rule against it, so I shall not complain. Allen, you are this year's crew chief draft champion, and it wasn't close at all. It was a net of 221 positions for Allen compared to my negative 32. The crowd going wild over here uh, in the Charlotte Bureau. Uh, David, any surprises? Because obviously you picked yours for a reason. There were some large negatives. I mean, Mike Shiplett and Cole Custer, you know, he came off a year where one way to deliver him success to a young driver was to do it in the pits. So clearly some surprises on your part, right? I mean, some of these crew chiefs just didn't show up and perform for you where this seemed like the only avenue for some sustained success on some of these teams was to do it with smart decision-making. My guys, um, woof. I, you know, at least, at least Ryan Sparks stepped up, but Mike Shiplett, interesting you bring that up. Disappointing as a first pick, (laughs) but, but he, he didn't have that bad of a year. He ranked six in the series with, 24 pit cycles with gains of two positions or more. And he only had seven green flag pit cycles with losses of five positions or more. Uh, and, and that was, uh, I think that was only the uh, that was second best actually. So really a scenario where his final tally didn't reflect how good he actually was. I have no excuse for the other two. <laughs> Scott Graves defended Ryan Newman's running position just under 55% of the time this year. Terrible effort. Travis Mack went long on green flag pit cycles so often with Daniel Suarez and the losses that they incurred with some of those. Uh, I mean, they they stacked up. 24 pit cycles of at least a two-position loss. That was the second most of any crew chief. That's got to change. Uh, Trackhouse does have speed in spots. Suarez is productive and criminally underrated. So it would be best if Travis Mack did not call races as if he's some neophyte. Uh, you know, see if, if you know just a, a bad driver was behind the wheel because that's not the case. Um, that desperately needs a change next season for them. But to you, Alan. Um, I got to say, I mean, uh, I guess I wasn't surprised with uh, the JTG guys. I loved those picks, uh, Owens and Patty, uh, and said as much on that episode. But Blick and Sturfer, I was so skeptical of the Blick pick, but <laughs> the Daytona 500 win took the need for a playoff shot off mm-hmm. of the table. So stage points were no longer really necessary. They they did tend to go for wins on road courses, and that showed. He was a negative 13 on road courses this year with Michael McDowell, but the bulk of their overachieving for Front Row Motorsports on 550 tracks was in part due to Drew Blickensurfer's routine of pragmatism. Uh, he tallied 31 pit cycles with at least a two-position gain, and that was the most of any crew chief. So a hearty congratulations to you. You have evolved from someone furiously texting (laughs) me that we can't do a podcast and have Randy Cox be the first pick in a crew chief. (laughs) You went from that guy to drafting Clinton cram (laughs) and beating me with him. That, that is, that's got to be the biggest glow up in podcasting. At least the one I can think of. Uh, absolutely. And I, I, I will not be humble about it. Uh, I knew what I was <laughs> doing. And uh, I, I'm thankful that I, I have uh, you to learn from. And now uh, I, I now I am the Jedi and you are the Padawan until next year. Well, all right. Gloat it up. You you deserve it. You won fair and square. Uh, I'll, I'll give that to you, but I'll be back next year. David, before I brag too much, I should note that there is another competition that I don't know the results to, so I will stop bragging, because I've just learned through you that our loyal listener, Ja G, K 
kept a log of our weekly predictions on Discord, and uh, you have the results. I do not know the results of this, so while I'm bragging about the crew chief win, uh, I'm a little nervous about what I'm about to hear. How did we do in our weekly picks? Remember, we had win picks and contrarian picks. Uh, what, what were the results there? Yeah, this was this was really cool. Mad respect for uh, Jaji for putting this together for us. Turns out I was better at picking winners this year than you. My picks averaged a ninth place finish compared oh. to your 11.9. Nice. Um, but I only picked four actual winners to your three. So I think we Ooh. both need to pick it up uh next year we gotta we gotta you know that's kind of bad i'm gonna i'm gonna (laughs) i'm gonna crap on us yeah Yeah, we we gotta we gotta step it up and go for the throat next three for 36 that's yeah that sucks uh but you sir are better at picking contrarians yours averaged a 13.8 place finish compared to my 18.0 I blame Ross Chastain for several of those. I also attribute you picking William Byron practically <laughs> every week because, as you know, life is easier when you mitigate risk. So hats off to you. Strategery. Oh, God. <laughs> Wait, it was good. Uh, that, that's very cool. But yeah, to think back, uh, if I had known we were keeping track, maybe I would have put a little more time and effort into it. Or I'm thinking back to my strategy sometimes was uh, – I, I, want, I didn't want to be boring, right? It was easy to take Kyle Larson a lot of times or, or take the favorite. Sometimes I wanted to shake it up for drama effect. So that, that contributes to some of my poor, poor three for 36 record, but that still sounds pretty poor. So uh, I, I will not make too many excuses for it. I, uh, I'm just going to go for it on contrarians. I, I don't think I'm, I like just being the freewheeling picker guy. I, I feel great about that. Um, no, I, I, I don't mind that at all. I don't mind losing any of these that that was fun for me. Um, just trying to pick, um, not, not really the winner for each race, but really I want to focus my mind on how a race is going to be won or, or, or how, um, at any point in the race, a lead is going to be achieved. And when you work backwards from that, because, you know, in theory, we know the ending to every race. Someone wins it, but we don't know who and we don't know how. And in making these picks and trying to find some contrarians, we're uh, we're trying to determine the who and the how. And and that's uh, not always easy. Sometimes it's obvious, but it's not always easy. Uh, but I think it's a good exercise and it puts our listeners in a good frame of mind heading into each race weekend. All right, good stuff. That is uh, sort of our wrap on 2021 because we will end the season finale of positive regression by looking toward 2022, David. And we have so much changing next year. And it's a question I know you get a lot. uh, I I get a lot directed, obviously, toward the podcast. You know, what will change for us or how we look at things with a new car, all this stuff. And we've answered it before. But, you know, what can we look at this year that will matter going forward in the next gen era? Because so much is changing, but something, it's still cars racing on a Sunday. So there, there are still some things maybe we can grasp onto. What did we learn in 2021 that, that we can go forward with? How about restarts? Fair? Yeah, fair. Uh, restarts matter. Uh, you know, this was a year of low caution volume, a year of long runs, call it whatever you want. But performance on restarts was a clear indicator of strength in terms of overall position retention rate. Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, Martin Truex, and Denny Hamlin ranked first through fourth. Folks, that was your championship four right there. Interesting. The power four. After that, it was William Byron, Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, Alex Bowman, Kyle Busch, and Ryan Blaney. I think that's your list of contenders. Right there, shuffle them around as you please uh, in a power ranking, but it's clear that short runs favor the best drivers and teams. And again, that happened in a year where restarts didn't really impact racing like it has in the last four or five years. It's the same restart dynamic going forward. The choose rule will carry over into next gen. And if the new car is harder to drive, there's a possibility for more crashes. And that means the strong remains strong. So short runs teach us a lot about 
drivers. It teaches us whether they're calm, whether they panic, whether they're disciplined. So it's no surprise that the cream rises to the top on restarts. It's an important element of modern day NASCAR. And I don't envision that a, that it changes and, and B that doing that well, doesn't also lead to doing well in everything that comes after. All right. Fair enough. Uh, strategy pit calls, uh, the cars may be different, but as we've talked about, you know, some crew chiefs are better than others when it comes to strategy. Uh, how, how much will, do you think that still factors in, in 2022, especially after we look at 2021? Absolutely. And I think the, the, the great road course expansion this year probably threw us for a loop. I think it threw us for a loop on the crew chief draft. We might have to, uh, Mm, adjust some rules next year because we saw a lot of cases where, seating position on long runs and during green flag pit cycles uh, was an offensive tactic, right? Um, Possibly the best thing about NASCAR's, ah, hell, I'll say it, highly convoluted qualifying process (laughs) is that the competition caution will be gone next year and uh, it cannot be gamed for crew chiefs for track position, uh, especially on road courses. The stage breaks on road courses were avoided by those who actually finished those races well. And I believe NASCAR should look into some sort of reform for how stages are accounted for on road courses because of this. And maybe Pocono too, because kind of the same dynamic exists. But uh, even though pit stops will change next year, the look of it, thanks to going from five to one lug nut, the strategy behind pit stops won't. The timing of when to pit is more important than how you pit. That's always been the case, at least under green. Um, And that's going to be based around tire wear. So all the tenants of pitting on long runs will, again, be of the utmost importance. And that strategy, if there is more competitive balance with the new car, as we have been led to believe, then strategy becomes paramount. All right. And finally, the... Specialist, you wrote down. Specialists will win out in the long run, mm-hmm. even with a new car. You think what the best restarter, the best short tracker? How do you mean by specialist? What will matter in twenty twenty two? I think a specialist team. You know, this is something ah. that I wrote uh, about a few weeks ago for NBC Sports. But the idea that a generalist won this year's championship. Kyle Larson was good everywhere at everything. The team pushed its focus and resources on being good at every track. And the whole concept still strikes me as flawed because for one, that plan required a generational talent driving for a team that was the fastest in the series with an engine advantage that no other manufacturer uh, was allowed to overcome uh, with a body advantage in a season with the restriction on spending and development. And that recipe will never likely happen again. Uh, and even then, there's usually only one most advantaged team, right? Every other team is going to be at some sort of disadvantage. And in a split horsepower series Still, I know 750 is gone, but there will still be a difference. Uh, And with the playoff format the way it is and the schedule in place, specialists will prevail some way, somehow. And trying to be good or great at everything as opposed to being great at one thing for the most part, that seems to be stretching teams too thin. Hendrick Motorsports might be very good again next season, but... I don't think that they will enjoy all the advantages that they had this year, and the path that they choose will probably look a lot different than the one they just used. I think going forward into a future with different track types, hard decisions like these on what kind of team you're going to be will be made. Uh, Team identities will be important. Understanding what teams have elected to do early on next year and what identities they've taken on. That will be key to us understanding uh, what is much of to come uh, for the remainder of the year and and maybe even the season shortly thereafter. Uh, What we saw the last three years since the horsepower split were the early stages of this new dynamic, and it's just going to compound next year and the year after that. We will see short track teams. We will see road course teams. We will see 550 teams. Specialties will be strengths. And when you and I pick winners and contrarians every week. I think these are kind of the things that we're going to be leaning into. 
that changes the sport a lot, I think, both internally in the industry and among fans, how you watch it, how you bet on it, what you expect, and uh, I guess, too, how we analyze. Looking forward to it. That's one of the biggest questions we get, and I look uh, forward to figuring out how we uh, analyze all that stuff, because once the data comes in, you know we'll be all over it. Uh, David, I'll put you on the spot here to end the season. I just want to get your thoughts. Something I tweeted out the other day on my account. For the first time since the beginnings of NASCAR, we have two champions currently under the age of 30 years old. And I just want to get your thoughts on that because we talk about the age 39 uh, season all the time and your your peak performers and statistically how that is when you are at your best on average right after years of data and everything obviously doesn't apply to every driver, what have you. But knowing that we have two young drivers that are both champions at the same time for the first time in since the early days of NASCAR, I'm talking like 1952, someone pointed out, what do you make of that? I, what do I make of it? I, I think I want to answer your question with a question. Mm. What if this is not the best version of Kyle Larson or Chase Elliott? What if there is more to come in 15 to 20 years? Uh, that's going to be great for them and, and great for us because they're winning a whole lot already. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but downright scary, right? Yeah. I think, you know, I, I've talked about this a lot. I think there was, Maybe Larson was the first, but Chase Elliott shortly thereafter, Eric Jones too, and then maybe throw in William Byron, Christopher Bell a little bit. But there's this group of drivers that came into the Cup Series sort of ready to go, able to pass efficiently. Um, if they weren't productive out of the gate, they at least could put on a show and be competitive. And I think that spoiled us and we don't fully realize it yet. I think the best is yet to come for Kyle Larson and for Chase Elliott and for drivers like William Byron and Tyler Reddick and this whole other generation after them. Ty Gibbs is uh, is really exciting. I, I, I can't wait to see what he does with a full year in Xfinity. When you tweeted that, that's what went into my mind is we haven't seen their finished product. Their, their current product it's pretty damn good and it's good enough to win championships. What are they going to be at age 39? And and how does that change the sport? Because I think these young guys are coming in with access to their own data, you know, courtesy of SMT, they're learning more about themselves than the old guard ever could. So, if you're more knowledgeable of what you do well and what you don't do well, you can make changes and improve accordingly. Once they get to a point where their bodies have matured, as Cup Series drivers have tended to do in the past, it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see what they're able to do with a stock car. I don't think we've seen anything like that. I think we're going to see, you know, it, it, it's almost something a carrot uh, dangled at the end of a stick. 10 years from now, we're going to see some serious, serious stuff and some pretty unbelievable, heady racing and i for one am pretty excited about that notion good stuff yeah man it starts you know, i mean think you know better more talented more seat time faster multi-disciplined th than the previous generations all at such a young age yeah the next uh, decade or so is gonna be pretty cool for race fans uh, so that's it. That is the finale of the season for positive regression. Let's uh, let's close it out. Do not forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posrecpod.com. Get you some listening during the off season. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This stuff helps spread the word so much. It, it really helps us. We notice it is so appreciated. And uh, we just love seeing it because that means you are enjoying uh, the work we do. And that's awesome. David, uh, I, I hope you take a little bit of a break in the off season. But what do you got? What are you working on? What's left? I'll also be writing here and there, and uh, if you'd like to receive those articles directly in your inbox completely for free, do consider signing up for that email list. Uh, send an email to motorsportsanalytics at gmail.com. I will personally put you on that list. Uh, I've got stat darlings to come, SWOT analyses, 
season previews are all right around the corner. So get on the list and stay on top of all of that uh, so that you are coming into 2022 as uh, the most prepared NASCAR fan that you can be. You just made the list. There we go. Um, I hope uh, you stick with me uh, and keep following my, all my social channels on Instagram and Twitter at Alan Kavana, certainly Facebook as well. The work I do for speed sport, NASCAR may be over, but a lot of racing season is not. This It'll go through the winter and we cover it all over on speed sport. The quick hits video I do on Thursdays, gas and goes on Mondays. Please continue watching those. I hope you uh, learned something from them because there's a lot of good action still going on. Next week, uh, I'm co-hosting on SiriusXM from 11 to 1 p.m. Uh, Thursday, what, Tuesday through Friday. So get you some fill there. Uh, hope you can tune into that on Trade and Paint or uh, it's called SiriusXM on track, actually, that, that show, that hour. So I'm uh, hope, happy to fill in there. And I, I hope we can just continue the conversation on, on social media. Always reach out to us with any of your questions. We love all sorts of racing talk. There will be tests. There will be news. We will cover it all. Thank you all for such a great, successful season. Make sure you have a wonderful holiday and off-season. We will miss you. We look forward to a new era. David, anything else you want to add in before I close it out? Uh, safe holidays to all and uh, just enjoy some downtime. It's okay to take a break away from uh, from racing. Find, find some new hobbies, take some new perspectives, whatever you need to do. But uh, give your brain a refresh and a reset and uh, we'll be back for more in the new year. And we're looking forward to it. Thank you so much. And if you're still listening, let me know on Twitter by Monday and I will find you a random Michael Waltrip diecast from my collection to send you. On that note, have a great non-racing season. We love you guys. Positive regression out. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired their personal trainer as a caterer. All right, folks, let's keep this line moving. You there with the tongs. Picking up one Duchess potato at a time will not cut it at my catering table. Drop and give me 50. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Okay, this is what we call the wild mushroom and asparagus dip, dip, and press. Come on, let's get those plates above your heads. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today.